Amen. I've asked the ushers not to hand out Bibles today because we're not going to do a lot of Bible study. I will read several passages to you, um, but they're in the NIV, and those aren't NIV, so I don't want to confuse anybody. Um, but today's a discussion about vision and where we're going and what we, what we really believe after a lot of prayer, months of prayer, what God has called us to do specifically here at Redemption Gilbert. So hang in there with me as I kind of lay it out for you. I've, I've decided, really feel like God wanted us to do this, have a discussion about the church. Not like the tangible things, we'll get to that in a little bit, but the church. Because if there's anything under assault today, apart from just Jesus being Lord and Savior, it's that Christians have bailed out on the church. They have quit on what uh, the Bible defends over and over again, that Jesus died to give us, was that one another piece. And so uh, this is going to be kind of pushing into a countercultural idea. So let me uh, start with this. Remember last week I talked to you about a, a, a survey, a Barna survey that I read about percentages of Christians and, and people who claim Christ and how it affects their life differently? Uh, well, this survey that I read suggested that there were like 78% of Americans who say, uh, use the term, I'm a Christian. Well, we know that's a little bit iffy. But, but of those 78%, uh, they asked them, what role did the local church play in your life? And 17% said it mattered at all. Which means of those quote-unquote Christians, 80-plus percent say the local church, what we're doing right now is, is not essential to spiritual development and, and or life. Now, I, I'm the one that says, or I, you know, there's lots of people who see that survey and go, well, it, it, you're, just, you're just using a tag like Christian, and how many people don't use that tag, so how good is the survey? Well, they went again and, and basically boiled that number down again to people who called themselves evangelical, or people who called themselves, or had a biblical worldview. Now, I'm, I'm sitting there reading the article going, come on, church, come on, church. It's like I was pulling for somebody, but... Only 25% of those who call themselves um, Christ followers said that the local church had any tangible impact and or need in their life. Now, I use that to say that that's going to be the beginning of our discussion because I think God cares deeply about the local church. Kevin DeYoung, he's a pastor of a, a church in East Lansing, Michigan. He's at the University Reformed Church. A young guy, but really smart guy. He wrote this. The church is, in fact, the hope of the world. Not because she gets it all right, but because she is a body with Christ for her head. So do not give up on the church. The New Testament knows nothing of a churchless Christianity. As long as God is interested in his glory, he will be interested and committed to the local church. He has a vested interest in it. Nobody loves your church more than your God. It's true. I don't know if you know the name Bill Hybels. He's a pastor that, that was the founder of Willow Creek. Of, of Now there's hundreds and hundreds of Willow Creek associates. This is not a discussion on principles or philosophy of ministry. He coined the phrase, the church, the local church is the hope of the world. Now, I could look at it critically and say, no, Jesus, Jesus is the hope of the world. But his point was not that we supersede or go around Jesus, but that the only Jesus anyone's ever going to see, experience, or hear comes through church. And I agree with him. I, I, when I read that phrase the first time, I wrote down my own of the scope of God's interest in the church. Not only is the hope of the world, but the church is the target of God's affections. Now, God is not a blasphemer. He doesn't love us more than he loves him. That would be sin. He's committed to his glory more than any other, but right underneath that is his bride. 
blows me away every time I think about it, that somehow in the midst of all God is, that he, before the foundations of the world, focused his attention on a bunch of knucklehead sinners like us and said, I will make you a people. You're the focus of my affections. And God's affections are perfect. And they're indescribable. We use the only words we have, amazing things, to talk about his love and affection for us. The local church is the expression of God's heart. So whatever, whatever God feels, the church gets to go out and react that way and talk that way and live that way. If God has a heart for the poor, guess where the poor feel it? From the church. If God has a heart for truth, guess, guess where God's heart is expressed? The church. Over and over again, the local church is the focus of God's effort that this whole thing is a rescue mission. This whole experience from Genesis chapter 3, the fall, all the way to Revelation, when this thing's all settled, is God is restoring for himself a people. He is establishing his kingdom, and one day it'll be right. And so we are the focus of that effort, and ultimately the church is the mouthpiece of God's word. We, we get to say it's Jesus. We get to say that sinners can be made right with with. God, and that it's possible to have your sins so clearly wiped out, you are no longer who you were, but you're now a holy people, like Peter says, a a holy nation, a royal priesthood, right? Amazing things. Matthew 16, Jesus said this, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail, or the gates of hell will not overcome it. In fact, the church is the only institution God has promised to sustain forever, I'm trying, to, I'm trying to raise the bar for your perspective, wherever it is on the local church. The only institution that will last forever, ever. Every Christian is called to be passionately committed to the local church. Here's why. Because in the local church, it's the, it's the, it's the place and the key to spiritual health and growth. I'm going to prove that in a little bit, but it's the place where you and I are in the process of being transformed into the image of God and all the mechanisms that the body plays to, to bring about that growth of spiritual life. It's also a place where, where um, the witness of God is expounded. It's the place where God's glory is revealed and where God's glory is shown. Local church is important. And, and I'm going to tell you something, my guess, if you're paying attention, you already know, but this idea of the importance of a local church is in a serious, serious decline right now. It's in, a, it's in a tailspin of people who have said, I'm a Christian, oh, and by the way, I'm a truth Christian, oh, oh and by the way, I'm a Bible Christian, but have no commitment to the things that God is committed to. So there's some problems that that kind of mindset creates. One is a me-centered church. I mean, and by the way, people have decided, ministry people have decided, well, let's not push against that. Let's just build an environment for that. And so you can find them everywhere, me-centered churches, who focus solely on the product. And, uh, and so people come saying, asking this question, what's in it for me? What will I get out of it? Right? And so they're interested in programs and activities. And they, they measure a church like you would go pick a car. It has all the right accessories. And that's why I'm going to go, because it meets, it's everything I need. But they don't see their fit in it or it, their contribution to it. They're just, they're just touch-and-go Christians. They come, and if it's what they want for the moment that they want it to the level of commitment that they have, that's the only version of church they have. And it can be very, very, very distant and very, very marginal. 
There's another problem that that kind of attitude creates for the churches or in believers is it creates an ungodly independence. There's uh, no interest in being involved. I mean, especially with people. That's a little bit too close. And so people, very little, very little investment in the one another's. And regarding to all the biblical authority that God's word holds for leaders and for sheep, people resist biblical authority. And they want their, they want their independence. And then another problem is it creates critical spirits. People who spend their time measuring a product for what good it does to them can therefore be critical of the product, right? So if, if the show's not good enough or if the, if the environment is not warm enough, if the show is not hot enough, I mean, we can write down our criticisms and, and do that, right? So there's no, allegiance to, there's no allegiance to a church. There's no allegiance to leaders. There's no allegiance to the one another's. Because um, it isn't about that. Because aren't, people aren't in need of it. I visited a church about two, three years ago. I use this as an illustration of, of what's in church. And I went to visit a, a friend of mine who was leading worship at a place, a young guy. And uh, so I went into the church, never been there before, very warm, very friendly. And I sat behind a row of elderly women. And they were so gracious and so nice and so, you know, welcoming. It was awesome. I thought, this is pretty nice. And then the music started. And then the lady in front of me turned around and she said, and this is the part we hate. <laughs> we hate this here. This is terrible. And I thought, oh, great. What if I don't know Jesus? What if I'm lost? What if I'm barely in the game? And you communicated to me something you didn't intend to, but communicates more loudly than all the good stuff. This is about goods and services. This is about the show. So it creates critical spirits, consumer mentality, looking for the best product at the best price, always on the hunt for something better. So that's a problem in the church. The other problem that it creates is that it creates um, this mentality that service is for somebody else, right? So if you're a me-centered culture, if you're a, a non-attached to the local church or don't have a biblical understanding of local church, then clearly service like open-handed care for others all the time, never quit service, has to belong to somebody, like a professional servant somewhere. They pay those people, don't they? Don't, don't they have them in a corner somewhere and they got Uber servant written on their head and I don't have to do that because somebody else will do it. And then there's this particular part where we, and I think this is the clearest, most crystal window into the soul of a believer about their feeling of a local church than any other. Their lack of giving. Their lack of commitment, financial, sacrificial giving to the local church. It's not faithful, it's not consistent, and it isn't sacrificial. And I'm going to make a point about that in a little bit. But So problems created by the me-centered generation, but you know this, Jesus loves his church. In fact, when Paul was instructing the church specifically about husbands their role to their wives, he used the church and Jesus' affection for the church to describe how a husband is supposed to love his wife, right? Husbands love your wives like Christ loved the church. How did he do that? He gave himself up for her. The Bible also says that you and I, Christian, are to be imitators of God. And if he loved the church so sacrificially that he gave himself up for her and we're commanded to imitate him in our behavior then that means we love what Jesus loves and we hate what he hates and he loves the local church. Sacrificially broken, never quit, never say die, open-handed, give everything you got to 
people in a local assembly is the heart of Christ. So, in Ephesians, you don't have to turn there. I, I want to just read this so you can absorb it. But Paul is talking specifically about this idea of what we are together. And he uses the idea of stones of a temple. That God is building for himself this monument of, of his goodness and his grace through sinners. And so there's a wonderful picture that's painted by all of us. All of the unique parts of us. All the weirdness of us. Coming together. Having all of our sins covered. And having a focus of God's glory and worship and passion for him revealed in how we treat each other in the world around us. And so Peter says this, uh, not Peter, but Paul says in chapter 2, verse 13, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once far away have been brought near through the blood of Christ. Now, church, you remember when you were outside looking in? It's such a deep darkness, you don't even know you're outside. You don't even know what the problem is. You know that there's things like confusion and loneliness and stress and suffering and you can't make sense out of all the pain and, and you're outside looking in and you look at the church and you go, they're, they're nuts. Who would do what they do? And then God turns on your lights. Remember? But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near to the blood of Christ. And then skip forward to verse 19. Consequently, Peter says, you are no longer foreigners and aliens. So this is the so what to that reality of being brought near. But your fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. See what God's doing with the church? A multifaceted, multi problemed, multi-rescued group of people he is putting together to fashion the church. A temple where he is honored and glorified and worshipped. So, that's what God has done for us. But there is another part that, that Paul talks about in chapter 3. He says that there's some amazing, mysterious wisdom of God on display in a thing like this. Let me read it to you. Paul says, although I am less than the least of all of God's people, this grace has been given to me to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery, for which for ages past was kept hidden in God who created all things. His intent, you ready? His intent was that now through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms according to his eternal purpose, which he accomplished in Christ Jesus, our Lord. There is some amazing, mysterious, won't happen, can't happen any other way wisdom of God on display through the church. And you thought it just happened on its own. Let me tell you what are the things that are on display. Reconciliation with God. Every time an unbeliever looks at a bunch of sinners like us and says, really, really? You describe God as this holy God who has a standard and he's got justice and he can't lay down his justice so, so there's punishment for sin and somehow God can take the sinner who's deserving of all that judgment and he can bring him together with God's holiness that he could make that okay? Yeah, sinners can be free. And we, church, we're living billboards of the reconciliation that sinners have with God. 
And I'm gonna, I believe this. It won't happen any other way. Not only is there reconciliation with God, but there's reconciliation with each other. Now, this is really practical. Sinners sin, right? And here's another rule. When you're sinned against, you tend to act sinfully. So sinners just bump into each other all day long, every day, wounding each other and creating lists and reasons why they shouldn't ever fix it. Because after all, I'm wounded and I've been hurt by it. And yet, here's what the gospel does. Here's what Jesus does in the church. It communicates out loud that sinners can be reconciled to each other because the source of our forgiveness is unlimited because of how much we have been forgiven. Jesus says, how much do you forgive your brother? Kill the numbers. Unlimited. Why? Because of how much you've been forgiven. The resource is staggering. And so world looks at church and says, wow, really, they really believe this righteousness of God thing, and they really do forgive each other. Yeah they, yeah, they do, because that's the mystery of God's intent through the church. You see? There's also things like God making us into a family. Paul says in Romans 8, the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children and heirs. We're now in this big thing called his family. Ephesians 1, Paul says that we are the body of Christ, that all of us have our part to play, although unique, purposefully put together to express ourselves in a complete way of God and to God and for his glory to the world. We are the temple of living stones. Remember, we've talked about in 1 Peter, the living stone Jesus is building us into a living stone temple that demonstrates the glory and the majesty and the worship of our God, and it doesn't happen when you're a Lone Ranger Christian. If you're a touch-and-go believer and you happen to show up here today, trust me, I didn't know. The Spirit knows. So, why do we need the local church? Because the only way to express our love for God's church is to love an actual church. Otherwise, it's just talk. Yeah, God, I love my wife. I really do, but I also had three fairs this week. But I love her, really. Yeah, God, I, I guess I'm supposed to love your church. I really love her, but I'm not really committed. I don't really serve. I don't really give. I'm not in it with people. Do you see my point? The only way to love the local church is to love an actual church. Otherwise, it's just lip service. So... It's through the local church that we, we're attached to God's work around the world. We're called to demonstrate our concern to the problems and the things that we see around the world by acting and living out locally. It's one thing to say, I care about the needs over there and all the destructions happening around us. Are you kidding me? The hands and feet of Christ go from the middle out. Your neighborhood and your place of work and your family. So the local church shows those around us about the new life we have in Christ and it shows those people about the new society called the body of Christ and they look at it and go, really? Like you guys love each other? Like you're committed to each other and it's not just through thick and thin, it's like a family thing? Yeah, really, it's, it's, it's a spiritual DNA. You know, I've got four boys at home. No matter what they do, I'm kind of thinking I'm committed to them. You know what I'm saying? Like I'm assuming I can always feed them and they can always hang out because they're my children and the Bible doesn't mince words when it says we're a family and there's a spiritual DNA of connection. And it, it, it shouldn't be taken as lightly it is, as it is. 
People are so marginal with their commitment to the local church and to each other. And so the Bible presents a body life we don't live. You see my point? See my point? Yeah. Don't be afraid. I wrote down a list of things that are distinct ordinances for the local church. You ready? One is gathering. Hebrews says, do not forsake the gathering. This thing, as absurd as you may think it is, Jesus ordained it. Gather. And all the more as Jesus comes. Just gather together because you have no idea what I'm going to do with that gathering. We're called to uh, learn in the context of the one another's in Acts 14, we're called to edify each other in 1 Corinthians 14. We're called to worship together in Ephesians 5. Baptism happens in the local church in 1 Corinthians 12. Communion, always remembering the, the Lord's work for us on our behalf. Discipline, Matthew 18, doesn't happen anywhere but the local church. So this last couple of weeks, Tyler Johnson and myself have been talking about the importance, the value, the power in the local church. And so he made a list, and I added a couple things and paraphrased some of these things. Um, But why the local church has power? Listen to this. Because it has the God-given mandate of the greatest commandment of all, to love him more than anything else and to love our neighbors ourselves. That's given to the church. It has the God-given mandate to equip God's people for works of service. It doesn't happen any other way. Remember Ephesians 4? I have given you pastors and teachers and prophets to equip the saints for all the good work I've called you to. The local church reflects the diversity of God's kingdom to come. All stages, all ages, and all races show up at a church. And it wouldn't happen any other way. If there, was, if there was still sin and division because of sin, well, this should look segregated like everything else, but God's kingdom has come here in our hearts, right? And so all those broken things, all those messed up division things, they're, they're gone. And in the church, you see how God wants it represented in his kingdom. It happens in the church. The local church is indigenous. You've heard this phrase before, right? Every believer is a missionary, cleverly disguised as an Intel employee, as a gas station attendant, as a donut maker, as a police officer, as a plumber, as a retired citizen. Every believer is a missionary. We have the hope of the world. We got the cure to their cancer. Everywhere we go, we know what they need more than anything else is they need the love of Christ, right? They might think they need more money, They might think they need healing physically. They might think they need things to sort out in their life. But no, their life is just an example. It's a display that Jesus is the answer. And we go on on display every time we do that. We're missionaries. The local church is sustainable. I have lived my entire 51 years in a church context. Now, some of it I wasn't even paying attention. But my dad's a pastor. So I've seen a few, maybe more than a few waves of the next greatest thing for the local church. Here's what we should all do. And somebody writes a book and off we go. That didn't work. Let's do this now. And everybody's chasing the next greatest thing but the church. The simple, biblical description of the one another's. That description is what Jesus said he would sustain. Won't go away. Doesn't lose its power. It still produces its fruit. Do you see that? 
The local church um, has power because it's destined for lifelong ministry with its members. I use this phrase, I don't know if you like it, but it's life on life for life. People belonging to people and we never quit on people. That's the only way it works. What if it is so superficial like it was when you were in junior high, you know? Somebody burns you and you, I'll never talk to them again. But it shows up in a church. But when we're committed to each other's well-being and their hearts and their defeat of sin and their desire to pursue Jesus at all costs and we stay in it for the long term, we're part of the pieces that is sanctification to become like Jesus over time. The local church ministers to its members in crisis and in prevention. So when really, 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 really bad things happen, the church is there to bear you up. And when you're in the process of doing okay and not seeing any problems coming, well, it's the truth, the ongoing, lived out, communicated truth and reminding each other all the time what we believe is the preventative medicine to what sin wants to do to our hearts, what the world wants to convince us we need other than or equal to Jesus, right? I'll give you this one too. The one another, the, there's like 15 of them in the scriptures that are mandated, definitive, principles to live out as the church, they can only happen and grow in the context of a covenant. Now, you might bump into one once in a while, but you can't finish unless you're covenant committed, right? So let's say the Bible says I'm supposed to um, pray for one another, but let's say it's just temporary and it's marginal. Can I obey that command? No. If it says I'm supposed to uh, rebuke or to confess my sin. How does that happen if we're not somehow connected? Not just for a Sunday, not just an hour and a half, not just once in every Christmas, but on an ongoing basis for a long, long period of time, right? That's the reality. John Piper, you heard of him. So this is going to sound better than anything I said. Um, sanctification is a community project. You know? Sanctification, let me define it. Maybe you're not, you're not familiar with that word. Here's what it means. Jesus interrupts your dead life and gives life. Once he turns the light on, the, the distance between coming to Christ and being like Jesus perfectly in heaven one day, this lifelong journey is called sanctification. We're progressing every day more and more, becoming like Christ. He's transforming us. And it happens in the one and others. Not complicated, but overwhelming, isn't it? It's true. We've already seen First Peter say that um, living stones built into a temple of worship. You know, I wonder, and this is just me. I haven't talked to the leadership team at all about this, but I wonder sometimes if we've made it complicated or confused you a little bit about um, this topic when it comes to Redemption Church. Here's what I mean by that. Um, I wonder sometimes if Redemption Church is a great way to skip out of the one another's. Hey, what church do you go to? I go to Redemption. Really? I haven't seen you in a while. Well, I'm going to Arcadia, and then I went to Tempe, and then I was over in Flagstaff, and it's like, you can't find you. You're like slippery. You're not belonging anywhere. You're not committed anywhere. You're not giving anywhere. You're not serving anywhere, but you're going to Redemption Church. Let me just tell you something. Pick a congregation. Pick one, love one, serve one, give one, pick one. That's what the scriptures say. If you're tangibly just moving around so nobody can hold you accountable or love you or pursue you into Christ, then you're not obeying the scriptures. Do you see what I'm saying? <laughs> Will you smile? You see what I'm saying? Yes. 
Yeah. And, and there's an epidemic in our culture. It's called the Internet. Um, and, and here's what I mean by that. Christians have decided to trade in church for CDs and blog messages and sermons on the Internet. Am I opposed to people watching sermons on the Internet? No. But I am desperately opposed to people trading in church for it. Tom was talking to one of the pastors of a big church in the valley, and they were, they were lamenting what they see coming as an epidemical problem. And that is that because we, are, we have access to the best of the best all the time, that, that it changes our perspective. So, um, after all, I'm a Chris Tomlin fan. I'll just listen to CDs. That's how I'll get my worship. And, and I really like Piper, or I really like you know, Tim Keller, or I really like Mark Driscoll, or whatever. And so I, I'm going to get those messages online. Well, there's a serious problem with that. Christians actually thinking that they're okay replacing the commitment to the local church for content. Because without the people... Without the interface, without pastors praying for you on a regular basis, or you praying for them, or us looking in each other's face, or perceiving what the Spirit's doing in a local context, it isn't real. It's content. Is it true? Yes. So supplement perfectly. Do whatever you want to supplement your understanding of of the Word of God. But you live in community. Do you understand? Otherwise, it isn't real. And Jesus didn't die so you could be slippery and free. He died so you could belong. Built into this temple of worship that somehow in its mystery brings glory to God that won't happen any other way. It just won't. So, these corporate gatherings of worship that we have has some supernatural punch to it. Like, more edification and strength happens to us and more glory goes to God in these things than can happen any other way. About a month ago, we had a baptism service. I don't know how many of you made it to it, four o'clock. And the Spirit was there. And I don't know how this happens other than God just likes this, but we had 50-some people baptized, and there were hundreds of people, not enough room for seats, and people were standing around the wall, and you could sense in the room right then, God is smiling on this thing. And the people got it. And they're going, this is wonderful. How does that happen on the Internet? How does that happen when you're jumping around from church to church and not committed anywhere? How does that happen when you don't know the life of someone who's confessing openly that they're following Christ? How do you, how do you touch that? Do you see my point? Just like you wouldn't do it in your family, you shouldn't do it in your church. John Stott said, if the church is central to God's purpose as seen in history and the gospel, it has to be central in our lives as well. How dare we push to the circumference what God has placed in the center? So what does it look like to be committed to a local church? You join. You covenant. You commit. Not marginally, but all the way. You make your local church a priority. You make the elder's job a joy. That's biblical, by the way, not selfish. You serve. You meet needs. There are no spectators. You give. You connect with people, and you share the hope, the hope of Christ. So I told you on the front end, um, this is a discussion about vision, and I have been praying for months about this day particularly and all the subsequent Sundays to follow about eight or nine months ago when I was having this conversation with Tom about the future, I knew at the, at the time that um, 
Well, I should be praying all the time, but I really hit my knees then. I said, God, this is your church. This is your bride. It, it matters too much. So tell me. Tell me what you want us to do. So I've kind of chased God around. I've talked to the elders. We've chased God around to find out his heart for what he has for us. And so what I want to share with you this morning with the rest of our time is the vision, where we're going. And the reason why I wanted to fertilize this discussion with the local church, because without an understanding, a biblical understanding of our belonging to each other, this is a serious waste of time. And when I was praying these things, I said, well, God, you're going to have to make us really committed to this thing. Like, we're really going to have to share life together. We can't just say more things that are true that we don't do. I don't want to add more, like, burden like that. Conviction of disobedience because we just talk a good game. We won't live. So these things I told you on September 30th when we did the transition Sunday. I told you these things are very, very old. And yet they're very, very powerful. Do you remember? And I'm glad they're very old. Because I don't have any authority whatsoever to tell you where we're going. (laughs) But Jesus does. And so these things you're gonna, you've heard before, and I want you to hear them again. And we're calling them the essential elements, the essential elements of a strong church. There are six things that I feel like God has clearly said to his church, and I just want to share them with you. And by the way, we're going to come back to this series again in January and do six weeks, one on each one of these elements, because we want to get in the water what we're to be and pray up what we're supposed to be. Here's the first one, God's word. And, and by the way, just a, just a reminder, when I was thinking about what God would have us talk to you regarding, some of these made me feel good, and some of these made me feel bad. Some of them I looked at and said, well, God, you've been faithful. That's happening. That's a really good thing. And then I looked at some of them and go, we're not doing that. God, we're not there. And so with me, you'll probably experience, who knows, the randomness of where the Holy Spirit says, and it's you, like he did with me. So let me go through these together. God's word, the essential element of a strong church. We preach the Bible in every context with the authority that God's word provides, and we respond in obedience. The reason why I say preach is the same reasons why I've told you for the last several months now of what I believe about the supernatural nature of the Holy Spirit in preaching. I know this is authority. I know it is. I know it has power to change lives and open up hearts. I know it does. I have an amazing amount of confidence in what God has already said. I'm desperate to try to say it the way he said it so it doesn't get messed up. So in every context at Redemption Gilbert, every context, from Sundays to Wednesdays with women's ministry to student ministry on Wednesday night to 710 on Tuesdays to children's ministry going on right now, every context, small groups, training tables, RCs is centered around the authority alone that belongs to God in the scriptures. And so I have, it's my definition of preaching. Preaching preaching is the hostile takeover of the heart. Because if people came receptive to God's authority, this would be easy. But the Holy Spirit has to come after us. No different than when we were converted. He had, to, he had to come after us. He had to open our eyes. So there's a progressive opening of our lives every time the word of God, the authority of God is preached. So good news, church. For 22 years now here at Redemption, Gilbert, now, or used to be East Valley Bible Church, the word of God has been faithfully taught. It has been told to you in a way that I think honors the scripture, and it will continue to be that way. So that's, that's good, and I wanted to start with that one, but I want to move on now to one that's going to hurt. It's prayer. We pray always, we pray big, and we pray with confident hearts because our God is able to do more than we ask or think. I am convicted 
about prayer. I have seasons where I pray really hard and then I, then I just wimp out. I'm being really honest. And so I have uh, made it a commitment of mine to pray, to pray like crazy, pray all the time. And uh, that passage in, in 1 Thessalonians just say, says, don't stop praying. Don't ever stop praying. And I think prayer speaks more about our faith in God and his will than any other action we can take. And I'm absolutely convinced that we're not the sharpest or the brightest or the quickest but it doesn't matter. Our God can do amazing things, amen? And so I'm committed to pray. And we're gonna pray a lot. And I'm gonna, by the way, before I move on, every one of these things you see is an essential element. We have a series of applications that we're preparing for you. Things where we're not gonna talk about anymore, we're gonna do it. One of the things about prayer is we're starting a weekly prayer meeting. And my prayer for prayer is that God would raise up enough prayers, in fact, more prayers than will fit in a room. I have, I have big numbers in my head. And I'm using it as a fleece. God, if we ever get prayer, if we ever get prayer, like you say it in Scripture, then we'll be overwhelmed with the amount of people who want to. There'll be many other things that you will see regarding prayer, but that's that one. The next one, intentional evangelism. I, I wrote the word intentional, and it was uh, intended to push against relational evangelism. Relational evangelism, I believe in it, but it's, a, it's the biggest excuse ever perpetrated on the church. I think you should live such good lives among the pagans. Though they accuse you of doing wrong, they will see your good deeds. But they'll glorify God on the day of visitation. But no one will come to Christ unless you don't open your mouth and say, Jesus. So it has to be intentional. I want us to live so differently that the people are won over or we become winsome to them, that they got questions. But if we don't have answers, if we don't have the courage to say, let me just tell you, it's Christ. In every context of our life, in the school, in the workplace, in our neighborhood, in the stores, wherever, we have to be ready for that. We're, we're committed to training you and helping you. Some people are nervous about that, about, well, I don't know what to say. Well, we want to give you some practical things. The other thing we're going to do in our prayers, we're going we're to create lists in a service like this. And every man, woman, child who calls Christ their Lord, we're going to write down three names of friends and family members and neighbors who don't know Christ, and we're going to bang on heaven's door for them. We're going to tell the stories of their conversions. We're going to introduce ourselves to them. And we're going, to, we're going to walk with them, disciple them in Christ. Amen? It's not going to be talk anymore. Biblical community. I think we do this one well, too. We're committed to living in a healthy biblical communities that reproduce. We need to grow. We need one another to grow in Christ. We've, we've talked about this one. Jake just taught a, a lesson on growing, reproducing biblical communities. But we're talking about math here. Multiplication. We don't have space anymore for people to say, I like my 10 people. I don't care about anybody else. The door is closed. We have to be ready for the multiplication of the evangelism that's going to take place from people who honor God with the truth of the gospel. And that means that God's going to raise up some of you who aren't prepared to lead to be leaders. That means that some of you who've had to us for no more, close the door kind of mentality towards small group, you're going to have to be hospitable and open the door and have strangers come in and go, wow, God, this is stretching me. Yeah, it is. And it's growing the kingdom. And more leaders will grow and more people will get saved and more groups will happen. Biblical reproducing com communities fifth one is serve the church. We believe that every Christian is saved to serve, so we will find our fit, meet needs, and serve the local church together. I think we're weak at this one, too. 
because we're, we're convinced that there's this professional department of church servers and I don't, it's not, it doesn't apply to me. Someone else has got it. There are things like children's ministry and student ministry and 710 and frontline and ushers and communion prep and all sorts of things. Women's ministry, small group, or table leaders, on and on it goes. God is calling the church to it. Now, I understand this. I understand that God uniquely calls people with gifts to do a certain thing. So we've created some ways where you don't have to leave what you feel is your God-given mandate in your life. But we need to figure out what it is to meet needs and serve each other, so we're going to create small-term service, small service projects for the church. When we get to January and February, I'll explain that in more detail. But we're going to do the things that the Bible says the church does, serve one another in love. And we're never going to be okay with saying, somebody else has got that. The last one is Generosity. We believe that God gives abundantly and sacrificially. Our obedience response is to be joyful and sacrificial givers to his church. I believe, like I said before, there is no more clearer window into the soul of a believer than to watch how he spends or how he doesn't spend his money, to see how he gives or doesn't give to his local church. And, and uh, the passage we chose there, 2 Corinthians, is a very convicting one. He who was rich became poor so that you who are poor may become rich. Here's what the reality of the gospel has done to us. We don't live in fear anymore. We don't live under the tyranny that we have to be our own provision anymore. We don't look at our retirement, nothing wrong with retirement. We don't look at our 403B or our stocks and bonds. We don't look at our house and the stuff we got in the garage. We don't look at that stuff anymore as a believer and say, I'm okay. Christians open their hands in the gospel and say, God, you've given and you can take away. It's all yours. And so the definition of New Testament giving is sacrificial. And I know why people don't. It's a faith issue. Because you're absolutely convinced that the culture, the times, the whatever, the politicians have so messed up the system that you can no longer count on the system to provide for you. And I think God in his sovereignty, in his love, has delivered that to the church. Because what happens to the church when it thinks it doesn't need God for its provision? It doesn't walk in faith anymore. It doesn't pray anymore. It doesn't believe anymore. So, we're not going to avoid the discussion of generosity and giving and tithing. We're not. We're going to talk about it. My personal opinion, we have neglected two or three generations of people teaching them about giving, and I understand why, and I'll talk about that in, in a few months. But it's a part of being a healthy, strong church. There's another part of our prayer time together as elders, things that I've asked God about beyond what I think are the mandated, God-given, never-change, always-doing, essential elements of a strong church. And I have asked God, well, what do you want to do? What do you want to do uniquely here? And uh, I've had the advantage point of 16 years here at Gilbert, so I'm hoping I'm close. Uh, I think we have a, a piece of our system that's a little bit in need of strength or strengthening. So we, we are announcing today that we're going to be adding on to our facilities. We're going to expand the conference center this next year to fix what I think is a fundamental flaw in how we do church. The double body thing, the two church thing, the front door where you can come in and leave and never connect 
with the body. That's a problem. The fact that they could go in the back door and leave and never connect with the body is a problem. The fact that we have two places to manage with leaders is a problem. The fact that we don't have the best front door for visitors to find us or to find an organic way through it because it's so complex and so all over the place. And so we're, we're, uh, we're going to build an addition. In fact, let me, let me put up a map uh, up on the screen here that will show you the scope of the work that we're going to undertake this year. What you see in the orange pieces, one, the large one is the conference center. That little narrow piece is a is a pass-through through the educational building. It will connect the back of campus to the front of campus. We had this already planned and permitted on the last build. We just didn't do it. This one will connect this part of campus and early childhood and in, in, in children's ministry to the conference center, which will then service as the worship center for all of our services. That picture you see there is the pass-through that will connect. The, it'll be right out the commons, right through the pass-through. In the courtyard over here, we're going to put in a, a small children's playground so that we can make it a really, really, really healthy, secure early childhood ministry area for them. Um, we're also going to put some monument signs out on the streets. Have you seen that postcard we have out there now? That's got to go away, and something you can see has to be there um, so people know. Yeah. But let me describe to you the, the, the conference center building. Um, that's the current picture right now. That is uh, 7,500 feet of interior space that we use for services at 8.30, 10.30, 4, and 6 right now. Two-thirds of our people that call Redemption Gilbert home call that their service, okay? I know it doesn't include you, but we want to make sure we're all together doing these services together. The expansion will look like this. We'll add over one-third to the room itself, uh, a large, a really large foyer, bathrooms, uh, some storage in, in the back, uh, along with all the other things I've just told you. This will grow this room almost double. This will be almost 1,200 seats, and uh, we'll be able to put all our services in, fix some of the concerns I have about Easter outside, you know, and it's too hot for people to sit, and Christmas and all the complexity of doing eight or nine services in a row. This will help us do that. But more than anything, it'll put our church in a room at one time so that we can do baptisms together, we can take pastoral prayer times together, we can pray as a congregation together, we can worship together, we can be together. So when, yeah, amen. So if you've been coming to Redemption for two, three, four, five years, you know the awkwardness of coming on this campus and having no idea where you're going or what you're doing. This will fix that. There will be a front door now. Weirdly, it's in the back. <laughs> But we've got plans to fix that and, and to get Wayfinder and, and really beef up our first touch ministry. So when people come on here, they get expedited to children's ministry. They get expedited to a service. They get expedited to you who will care for them as Christ. And so when they walk in a service, we want them just to see nothing fancy. People who really love Jesus, who really are committed to the word of God, who are living this thing out. Old, old things that are powerful, Right? And so just to give you a couple contrasts compare, if you've been here for 10 years or so, you know we've taken a couple runs at, at a building before. Um, we planned a building probably eight years ago that was going to be 2,500 seats. The cost was going to be $9 million. When we got done with the design, we thought, well, it's the wrong building. It's, it's kind of a build. It's like your parents' Oldsmobile. It's, not, it's, it's cool and all, but it's not what we're looking for. So we started over, and we built uh, designed um, what we thought was the right building. But God interrupted. About four years ago or so, five years ago, he interrupted, and, and, and I know now why. Um, at the time, there were things like it just didn't feel right, and, uh, 
And then about, a, about six months to a year after that, the financial crisis in our world just kind of came, and we thought, well, did God rescue us? Because that, that other building was going to cost $13 million. We thought, well, isn't that great that God rescues from, a, from that? But as soon as all that happened, churches started to plant. We have sent out, not hundreds, but thousands of people to churches around the valley. Some have gone on plants that we are directly connected to. Some have gone just to other churches. But leaders are scattered all over this valley who love the sovereignty of God, who love Jesus, and are equipped to tell the story of Christ. So you can look at Emmanuel Fellowship. You can look at Ponte Vida. You can look at Second Mile. You, you can look at Christ Church. You can look at Grace Bible Church. You can look at now Flagstaff, and you could look at West Mesa. You can look at all these churches and go, Wow. What, what if that church had bought that big building? It would have to staff that big building. It would have to pay for that big building. It probably wouldn't have the opportunity to get in kingdom business like it did. And I confess, this is one of the things that God does. We're not smart enough for this. He did it. And I look back at that and go, look what, look what he did. I've got a list. I've got Tyler and I working on a list of all the things God has done over the last couple of years. It will stagger you at the open-handed giving nature that God has brought to our church. But, so, not 9 million, not 13 million, but 2.5 is the estimate on this. So we'll gain double space for a, what I would call, massively frugal price tag. We'll get signage, we'll get pass-through, we'll get playground, and we'll get a building that we can use. It's not going to be glamorous. It'll be functional. And we'll be in there for a long time, God willing, and we'll be together. And I think it's an essential part of where we're going. I, I struggled the last service. I'm just going to confess out front. I'm committed to the essential elements. Like every time I think about it, I'm just, I get moved in my heart. I think, well, that's, that's important. I want to make sure I emphasize that. Last time when I talked about the building, I kind of stepped back and got a little passive. And I had a, a, an older gentleman come up and he said, listen, you need to push into that. And I go, I, I don't want them confused that somehow the building's more important than the essential elements. But I also don't want you to confuse that this is an important part of this. So I'm going to tell you what we're doing. Um, I have been praying for two specific fleece kind of prayers for the last six months. One is that our prayer meeting would grow, that would outgrow this room. We'd have over 700 prayers. That's one. Two is that by the time we get to March 3rd, when we do our, our collective uh, gathering of money and, and uh, uh, promises and pledges, that we won't borrow a dime for this building. I think the money's here. I know the money's here. The problem is we don't believe. And I'm hoping that what God will move in our hearts, that we will be part of the next wave of the kingdom of God. And 2.5, just so you know, it's a lot of money, but it's not to God. And to 3,000 people who say Jesus is their Lord and Savior, it's nothing. So that's what I'm praying. I'm praying for two things. So here's what I'm asking you to do. Take this. Um, if you're one of those fridge magnet people, um, if that's your version of remembering, put this on your refrigerator and pray like crazy for these elements to be lived out in our congregation here at Gilbert. You can pray for the building. Building is secondary to us becoming the church that Christ wants us to be. This thing is just going to be a tool, but it's going to get done. Someone has said, well, you've had two runs at a building. Are you certain this is going to happen? We're starting it. It'll start in February. It'll finish this time next year. And, and we'll be in there. We're going to do it. Now, that means there's going to be some adjustments that we make along the way, service time adjustments to deal with the, the time frame that the building's being built. Um, but it's happening, and we get to contribute to it. And so I'm excited about where we're going. I really am excited about all these pieces. So let me leave you with some homework.
If you have questions, and you will, we've uh, talked to the Third Thursday leadership, and we've talked to Salt. In both of those environments, we did a Q&A. I would love to do it here. We don't have the time for it. But that doesn't mean you don't have questions. Every pastor and elder in our church is equipped to answer your questions, so just feel free. Just feel free to ask them, and, and uh, any question is a good question. There's no dumb ones. Um, we will begin a series, a six-week series in January 27th that will finish March 3rd that will cover these six um, essential elements. On March 3rd, we will have that uh, Commitment Sunday where we're asking for a cash offering and uh, pledges towards the building. My prayer is that we meet all of that 2.5 on that Sunday. Um, can you contribute to the building now? Someone asked in a meeting we had once. The answer is yes. Neil Pitcher will always take your contributions. Um, so anyway, when you leave today, this card is at every door. Please make sure you get one. The ushers will make sure you have one. And if you need more than one because your friend's not here, grab it. Um, I'm, I've been praying for six months for what I told you. And I, I'm convinced somebody more polished could have done it better. But I know, I know it's what Jesus said. So there's huge confidence in it, right? Huge confidence in it. I'm excited to see what God's going to do with us. I'm excited with what I would call new versions of deeper ownership of what it means to belong to a local church. I'm excited about the, the stretching of sacrifice. I'm excited about servants who give away. I'm excited about pray, praying. And uh, if you would join me in prayer, even if you don't have the wherewithal to be at or do anything, would you just pray that God would have his way with these things in our church? And uh, I believe he will. So let's finish with prayer. Let's ask God. Father, thank you for um, your never-ending, never-failing love. God, thank you for not treating us as our sins deserve, but you treated your son as our sins deserved. And you've brought us together into one body, one people, a royal priesthood, a holy temple that tells your story, sings your praises, and lives your life. God, these things aren't magical in the sense that they have never been heard before but they've got so much power because it's what you've it's what your will has for us so your will will be done God some of us are afraid of these things that we don't do well and some of us are afraid of money and sacrifice some of us have learned to live in in disobedience too long that to obey would hurt too much God, I pray right now that your spirit would just overwhelm every man, woman, and child who loves you in this space and in the conference center this morning. Make us like Jesus. Amen. Thank you, everybody. We'll see you next Sunday. Have a great day.